The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. None who rules over you simply find out that you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH on Andy, your host. Today is time for our Friday show with Dr. Peter Hammond. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I'm with you, yes. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And um, really fascinated, as I always am, by the title Peter has for us today. The real story of anti-white racism and calls for genocide of all whites. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today with this uh, topic? Some people may have noticed that uh, you you may have even seen some of the video footage that's going around of Julius Malema, leader of the third largest party in the country, the Economic Freedom Fighters of the EFF. I call them the Everything for Free Party. EFF has chosen red as their colour. They are directly Marxist. They call themselves a Marxist-Leninist party. They call themselves a vanguard of the revolution. They are Marxist revolutionaries. And their main principle is to hate whites. And the song that the leader, Julius Malimba, who used to be the head of the Youth League of the African National Congress, he left the ANC in 2013. So this year they're celebrating their 10th, their 10th birthday. And they are actually behaving like 10-year-olds, although most 10-year-olds behave a lot better than this. Nevertheless, a very uh, immature bunch of politicians, but they're in parliament. So here's a leader of a political party, a member of parliament, and he's leading the people. You can see the video footage. Uh, I've sent the link to you. You could put it up on on the show post where he's shouting out leading 90,000 people in a stadium in Johannesburg. Kill the boer. Shoot to kill. Ba, 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 ba. Shoot to kill. Kill the boer. Kill the farmer. Kill the farmer. Kill the whites. Kill the boers. Kill the Boers, Boers being the traditional name for the farmers. It's uh, the Afrikaans and Dutch word for farmers, Boer. You remember the Anglo-Boer War, uh, the, the Anglo War against the farmers in South Africa in 1900. And uh, so the word Boer is an old term to refer to farmers and Afrikaans people and even whites in general by the leftists. So there he is, all dressed in red and this whole stadium full of people with red caps and red Marxist T-shirts and all jumping up and down and singing, kill the Boer, kill the farmer, shoot to kill, kill all whites. And now Elon Musk uh, sent a Twitter around to complain about this and challenging South Africa's president, Ramposa, why does he not speak out against this? It is obvious incitement to violence. It's obviously hate speech. How can this possibly be, be legal? How is it possible that this is not an issue that people need to uh, deal with? And... Uh, 
Interestingly enough, he's being attacked in the media by the usual suspects. Um, apparently, it's okay to scream about killing the whites and killing the farmers, but if you use the wrong pronoun or you say something like those people, uh, next thing they will start screaming about, uh, well, you're, um, you're insulting black people and they've had people fired from their jobs. They've had people imprisoned and charged with um, hate speech for using some derogatory term referring to another race. But apparently, when you sing about killing whites, that's not hate speech and not criminal incitement, which doesn't make sense at all. So you wonder, where are our Human Rights Commission? Where's the law enforcement? Where's the Ministry of Justice? And where's the international outrage? And uh, right now, we've got a most shocking state because it's not just that these people are singing about it. They're doing it too. Just in the week following that, seven farmers and their family members were tortured to death. And we don't just mean killed. We mean tortured to death, throats slit, beaten senseless, uh, treated in the most abominable way. When when you speak about farm murders in South Africa, we're not talking about a couple of dozen people. We're talking about thousands. Thousands of farmers and their family members have been murdered since Mandela became president in South Africa. Thousands. And depending on the statistics, whether they're including uh, whites on small holdings or just the classic farmers, whether you're including the farmers or if you're adding their wives and children as well, the statistics can go over 4,000 documented uh, by Afroforum and others on uh, Genocide Watch, uh, the killing of white farmers. When you're talking about killing of farmers, we're talking about torture. So kids having boiling water straight from the kettle poured down their throat and over them, uh, people scalded, um, using, uh, putting them in a bath and chopping off limbs and using chainsaws and things like this. Just hideous, hideous torture, um, hanging a child uh, um, in front of the parents, uh, raping uh, mothers and grandmothers in front of the family and then murdering them all, uh, things like this. When our um, head of the Freedom Front, Freedom Front Plus is one of the fine political parties in South Africa that tries to speak the truth, when he stood up in Parliament to speak about this and he said, how can this be acceptable to uh, speak about killing all whites? So Peter Cronenwald, the head of the uh, Freedom Front Plus, he stands up in Parliament and says, in the Parliament in Cape Town, that's the same Parliament that got burned down at the beginning of last year, by the way, and they haven't even started rebuilding it. Um, and when it was burning, the FF was saying, this is wonderful, this is great, we must uh, add fuel, uh, we need to burn down the whole Parliament. They don't like the Parliament in Cape Town, they want to move, and so on, which is also intriguing, they want to move it up to the Transvaal where they control it. Cape Town is against the ANC radicals and the Cape is preparing for secession anyway. So um, obviously it suited the purpose of the radicals to burn the parliament down and they haven't even bothered to fix it or to start to rebuild. And we just went through the worst kind of rains. They never even bothered to put a tarpaulin over the roof, which is of course open. So during the middle of winter rains, we got thousands of litres of water in the basement of the of the Parliament, destroying vast amounts of irreplaceable art and furniture and artifacts and so on. And they just don't care. This building is worth billions. Now they're talking about a contract of a couple of billion rand to rebuild this parliament. And they say they will have it done in two and a half years. Why would it take years and billions to rebuild this? They could have done something about it immediately. But that's another story. So what we had was 
our leader of the Freedom Front opposition parliament said, how can this be acceptable to stand up in parliament and say, kill all whites? And as he said it, a whole lot of people said, yes, yes, yes. Now, this is members of parliament. And um, when he was talking about uh, that they were torturing whites in there and uh, some of the members of parliament of the ANC shouted out, bury them alive. And some others shouted, burn them alive. And when they were challenged to identify who had shouted those things, the people didn't want to stand up and make themselves known. But neither did the Speaker of the House call them to order or rebuke those people making such incredibly unparliamentary comments. So in the parliament itself, you've got people enjoying the idea of kill all whites. And then you've got people like the daughters of Barack Hussein Obama saying they look forward to the day when there won't be any whites left in the world. And then you've got professors in university in America saying white genocide is so obviously a necessary and attractive of prospect. One can imagine only racists could oppose the idea of, of removing all whites. So Julius Malema, actually uh, the one who is leading this uh, kill all whites campaign, he has said, we need to cut the throat of whiteness, cut the throat of whiteness. And to depict this, they went on to a beach in a very prestigious part of, of the Cape, um, Clifton Beach, which is where there's a lot of yuppies and billionaires have their um, apartments and penthouses uh, facing onto this beach. And they dragged the sheep onto the beach and cut the throat of the beach uh, of the sheep, saying this is what we need to do with white. And they cut the throat of, the, of this sheep and had it bleed out on the, on the beach. Now, you sort of wonder, where are the animal rights people? Where is the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals? Uh, but quite aside from anything else, what about the Genocide Watch people? So according to Genocide Watch, uh, Gregory Sanson, Professor of Mary Washington University, Vice President of the International Association of Genocide Scholars, says, genocide cannot be committed by an individual or a small group. It takes the coordination of a large number of people and the state. The genocidal process starts with prejudice that continues to grow. And they've identified nine stages or operational processes for genocide. And of course, the 20th century began with this, with genocide against the Boers in South Africa. And our good friend Stephen Mitford Goodson wrote the book Genocide of the Boers, documenting how the Rothschilds had decided to destroy the Boer people, the Afrikaners in South Africa, because their farms were inconveniently over the gold mines and diamond mines. And so to consolidate control of the gold and diamonds in what they called the richest piece of real estate on earth, the Witwatersrand or the White Waters Ridge, where most of the gold was, the Rothschilds determined to start a war with the South African Republic, the Transvaal, of, uh, which was ruled by uh, President Paul Kruger at the time. I don't know if anyone has ever seen the film Urm Kruger, O-H-M Kruger, it's a German film with English subtitles made in the 1940s, very, very high standard, um, tremendous film, cost of thousands, a real classic, black and white, but well worth seeing. I saw it just recently. And if people want to get a perspective of the Anglo-Boer War from the Boer perspective, I think that's the only film ever made from the Boer perspective. The Germans made it, and uh, it's in German with English subtitles, Urm Kruger, or Uncle Kruger. And uh, well worth seeing, and... Uh, it's available on archives on the internet. And I could send you that link. Maybe you'd want to put that in a show post as well. But uh, the genocide of the Boers was organized 
through the concentration camps and scorched earth, the British, Canadian, Indian, Australian, New Zealand forces that ganged up against South Africa in 1899 to 1902 destroyed 30,000 farms. They killed hundreds of thousands of cattle and sheep uh, and thousands upon thousands of horses, in fact, hundreds of thousands of horses. They imprisoned the Boer women and children. An average Boer woman was having 13 to 14 children at that stage. That was the average. Paul Kruger's wife had 17 children. And so putting them in the concentration camps, they died out at a phenomenal rate. And uh, in fact, when you go to the Anglo-Boer War Museum in Bloemfontein, which I've been to many a time, they have got uh, the women's monuments. And interestingly enough, in front of the women's monument, there's a wall with the names of every Boer soldier who died in the Anglo-Boer War. And it's on front, it's killed in action. And on the back, it's got names of died of wounds and then died of disease. And it's got over 5,000 names of and dates of Boer soldiers who died during the Anglo-Boer War. And then they've got a bigger wall facing it now, which has got 32,000 names of Boer women and children who died. I mean, what on earth goes on when you get six times more women and children die in a war than the combatants? And I even saw Hammonds there, interestingly, um, who died in British concentration camps. So there must have been some uh, Boer uh, women who married to an English-speaking person who was on that side. So it's it's absolutely tragic seeing the names and the ages, young people um, and, you know, children dying at age 1, 2, 12 and so on. And uh, the concentration camps were so bad, Emily Harphouse, the courageous English woman who exposed all this atrocity, which was described as methods of barbarism, which I think is an insult to the barbarians, they were never this bad, that it was a policy to starve to death the family members of those who had relatives in the field. So if a, a woman's son or brother or husband was in the field fighting against the British, uh, they were on half rations. And it's not that anyone had good rations either. And the British treated the Boer prisoners so badly, uh, they uh, did not even allow them to have soap. It was Emily Hophouse's campaign to get soap in because they said soap is a luxury. And they were dying of typhus and so on at such a great rate. So um, you can just see the these huge graveyards of little crosses, little kids killed uh, in these camps by the savagery, which the Rothschilds inspired, well documented by Stephen Mitchell Goods in the book Genesis of the Boys. And so it's happened before. And today we would be seven to eight million strong, probably nine million strong, right now, Afrikaners in South Africa, if it hadn't been for the uh, genocide of the Boers back then at such a key time, especially reaching the most fertile people, the, the young women and children, um, when at a time when the average woman was having 12 to 13 children. And that was a genocide of the Boers before. But now you've got a campaign to try and get rid of, of all South African whites again. Now, the next genocide of the 20th century was against the Armenians, and the uh, Greek Orthodox and the Syrian Christians in Turkey, and uh, especially 1915, but culminating in the destruction of Smyrna, the last Christian city of Asia in 1922, but three and a half million Christians killed by the Turks between 1915 and 1922. And it was so bad that in the destruction of Smyrna, British, American, French, and Italian Navy warships were anchored off Smyrna 
watching this, and not only did they not intervene as the Turkish army mobilized to murder hundreds of thousands of Christians uh, in the last Greek Christian civilized civilization uh, outpost in, in all of Asia. And the, but when people actually tried to swim up and climb up the anchor chains to get onto British and so on vessels, they had boiling water poured over them by the sailors. And so the Allies did worse than nothing. They actually harmed people who were coming to them for sanctuary. They didn't provide sanctuary. They did nothing to help. Do you think that there was that kind of barbarity and callous indifference to Christians, Greek Christians, who were being slaughtered by Muslim Turks in 1922 in Smyrna? It's absolutely shocking, but we're facing the same kind of indifference today. So to go back to the uh, Genocide Watch, International Association of Genocide Scholars, um, nine stages of genocide are classification, symbolization, discrimination, dehumanization, organization, polarization, preparation, extermination, and ninth stage is denial. Well, you can see how, according to Genocide Watch, South Africans are already in stage eight and nine because they're, they're we, we have documented it, and you can see some of these documentaries have been made on the farm murders in uh, farmland and others, where you get military-grade weapons, military-grade um, cell phone blockers, and people with military precision coming in, a whole group. Sometimes they've been captured and killed, and it's been found that the people attacking were members of the National Intelligence Service, which is South Africa's equivalent of the CIA, or police, or South African National Defence Force, and many of them are actual uh, terrorists working under the Pan-African Congress or the ANC. This has been well documented. Ernst Roots uh, of Afroforum has published the book Kill the Boer, Government Complicity in South Africa's Brutal Farm Murders. That's the title and the subtitle. Kill the Boer, Government Complicity in South Africa's Brutal Farm Murders. Ernst Roots of um, Afroforum. Uh, he's been a guest in our mission house here too, and he's a very brave man. Ernst Roots has been um, at the International Human Rights Commission to complain about the um, incitement to violence and incitement to genocide against whites in South Africa. And we literally have gone through all these stages, the discrimination and dehumanization. Whites are being described much like I saw in the run-up to the Rwandan Holocaust uh, in 1990s, where Rwandan Tutsi minority uh, Protestants were being called Inyenzis or cockroaches. You know, they were being dehumanized. And even the killing of the Rwandan Tutsi was turned into work and clearing the land. And they used uh, basic terms that you'd use for cleaning the land for wiping out their Tutsi neighbors. And it was so bad in Rwanda that, as I documented in my book, Holocaust in Rwanda, the uh, United Nations first helped disarm all the people in Rwanda, which made it possible for the genocide, because just like criminals preferred disarmed victims, uh, so governments preferred disarmed citizens when they were planning genocide. And every genocide is preceded by gun confiscation and gun control. There was tremendous media manipulation as the people were whipped into hatred. Liberal church leaders were involved. It was so bad that there were government leaders, even even church leaders, even bishops and cardinals were involved in uh, organizing the genocide of the church members. It was so bad that there were even doctors, even gynecologists organizing the slaughter 
of their Tutsi patients. They had Hutu doctors, uh, that's the uh, majority tribe, Hutu doctors were organizing, and nurses, organizing the slaughter of their patients. I went into the maternity ward in Kogali Hospital, blood all splattered up the walls. You had these gynecologists, surgeons and nurses walking in with machetes, pangas, hacking the limbs off and beheading their patients in a maternity ward. I mean, can you imagine such things? That's only possible when you've dehumanized the people. And there's some films that document this. Uh, I Shook Hands with the Devil, um, with, which is done by Romeo uh, Delier, the Canadian general who was in charge of the United Nations uh, Intervention Mission Unimir in Rwanda. And General Romeo Delier really was a believer in uh, the UN. He believed in New World Order. He believed the UN was there to help. And so he was shocked when he saw he was undermined by Secretary General and by the head of the Security Council, Butchus Bustuskali and Kofi Annan, undermined him on every level to prevent him from saving lives and any and abandoning them. That's been a, produced as a book and a film, Shake Hands with the Devil. And then there is also uh, Hotel Rwanda is not as good because it was all filmed in South Africa with South Africans and Americans, not a single Rwandese and nothing filmed in, in Rwanda. Hotel Rwanda is a bit of a, a weak expose. It never tells you what happened against and who was being targeted. But there's a better one, Shooting Dogs or um, Beyond the Gates, which is based on the true story of a missionary and his school, ECO school, which was abandoned by the UN, uh, lied to and deceived and then abandoned as the UN evacuated the base into Humbre mass murders were blowing their whistles and dancing with their machetes in their hands, waiting to come in and hack these people to death. They killed 2,500 people uh, in the school, which had been a UN refugee center of protection, but the UN was ordered to abandon them, and they didn't even tell them they abandoned them. They just uh, had them assemble for a meal in the hall, and then the UN evacuated, uh, drove out while the people were distracted, and before they knew it, they were being invaded by the inter mass murdering mobs and slaughtered. So these things have happened before, and it started with dehumanizing the uh, minority group that was being targeted for genocide. The government of Rwanda organized the genocide in 1994, but the UN assisted, liberal news media really helped, and liberal church leaders were part of it. Today, there are mass murderers, architects of the genocide in Rwanda, living in Canada and France under protection of governments that signed the anti-genocide treaty. But to use the words of the French Minister of Foreign Affairs, we were holding the line for Francophone Africa against Anglophone Africa. Translation, the mass murderers spoke French, so that makes it okay. So the French government supported the mass murderers in Rwanda because they spoke French and the rebels were mostly English speaking. So holding the line for Francophone Africa against Anglophone Africa means genocide's okay if it's done by French speakers. And if the victims are English speakers or, or Tutsi, that's that's just fine. So, so much for the anti-genocide treaty. France is to this day and Canada protecting architects of the genocide who living under protection there and not being extradited back to Rwanda to face um, law for uh, their uh, mass murders and incitement to violence and organizing this genocide. So this has happened before. And right now, what do we have in South Africa? We've got... People sing, kill a boer, kill a farmer. Back in 1993, our church at St. James was attacked, and we spoke about this just recently as we passed the 30th anniversary, 25th of July, 1993. 
Pan-African Congress terrorists, upper terrorists of Pan-African Congress, came into the St. James Church of England on a Sunday evening service, hurtled hand grenades, which had nails strapped around it for extra um, shrapnel impact, and then fired machine guns right in a packed congregation of 1,400, killing immediately 11 people, including women, and uh, injuring or crippling 50 people. And they planned to burn everyone alive with petrol bombs, but they were not able to get the crossfire and to uh, be able to do what they wanted and burning the whole church down with the people inside because one of our missionaries, Shaul, was present and fired back with a snub-nosed revolver and uh, sent them fleeing. And that also made them abandon their attack on Christchurch, Kenilworth, which is just up the road, not even a mile away from St. James. Now, just a month later, I was watching a Pan-African Congress march in Cape Town in Kenilworth, where this attack had taken place. They were marching to the Claremont Police Station, led by Patricia DeLille and Terry Lakota, uh, who were ANC and Pan-African Congress leaders. And they were chanting, one church, one bomb, one minister, one bullet. One minister, one bullet, one church, one bomb. Now, these are people who became members of parliament. And in the case of Patricia DeLille, who we call Corilla DeVille, she became mayor of Cape Town later. And uh, there's a whole story about her She's been through so many political parties. She's a political prostitute, got no no principles, and has never apologized or repented for her role in calling for the death of ministers and bombing of churches and calling for the freeing of the terrorists who, without question, because she even admitted he did it and was proud of having machine gunned the people in the congregation, um, seeking him to be released from jail when he was awaiting trial. Well, that's what comes of dehumanizing people. So what we've got is cutting the throats of whiteness, kill the Boer, kill the farmer, kill the white man. And they've got all kinds of slogans that they come out with. And in fact, we've even got video footage where you can hear Nelson Mandela singing, um, kill the whites. And um, it's, but most people miss it because it's in causa and, uh, he used the words that were um, were not as known by the average person in English. So when he spoke in English, he would speak very uh, conciliatorily. But when he was speaking in uh, causa, then he could be uh, more um, direct and incendiary. So for, he even said to his people, don't worry what we say for white, uh, say in English, that's for the foreign consumption. Listen to what we say in causa. So we've got pictures and you can uh, Google and see um, Nelson Mandela, while president, singing with his fist in the air, this clenched fist communist salute, Dubula Ibunu. Dubula Ibunu is kill the white. And he's standing there at a funeral and singing kill the white with his fist raised in the air. And this was a very popular song of the ANC for years. And they were challenged that that was not acceptable. So they, they basically phased it out in, 19, in 2013. But that's when the youth leader... Julius Malema left the party to start this um, economic freedom fighter party, which I think is a complete sham because they're trying to pretend that the EFF is a completely separate party. And it, what it's done is it's provided plausible deniability. What happened is the year before in 2012, the ANC at the national convention determined to prepare for the second phase of the revolution. And the second phase of the revolution needed to be able to take um, – 
position of everything. So the first phase of revolution is, is political power. Second phase of revolution uh, is every other kind of power, including farms, including gaining control over uh, the uh, uh, economic uh, levels of power, everything, the churches, the works. And so the ANC determined, and I've scoured through the 70-page documents, the second phase of the revolution, and they speak about the need for a vanguard of the revolution. And it's obvious to me, having studied communism my whole life and worked amongst persecuted churches in communist countries, I mean, I've traveled in 42 countries, I've worked in 38 countries, I've been involved in eight wars and three revolutions. And it's quite clear that EFF is the vanguard of the revolution for the ANC. And you can see this because if, if the ANC uh, was uh, regarding the EFF as traitors and Julius Malimba as a defector who set up an opposition party to them, then they wouldn't accept anything that he did. But we've got pictures of Julius Malema being hugged by Ramaphosa, and you can just see the body language shows absolute, there's no resistance between. They, they're plainly happy in one another's arms and absolutely uh, warm. And you can see also that when the EFF proposed expropriation without compensation of farms to take away white farms uh, back in 2018, when Ramaphosa became president, Every single member of the ANC, including Ramposa, voted for Julius Malimba, the EFF's proposal of expropriation as compensation. Now, if the EFF were the enemies in the competition of the ANC, they would have voted against him on principle. They might have brought out their own bill, which may have even been the same, but on principle, they're not going to support that of a defector and a traitor who's competition and the enemy of the ANC. And similarly, when Julius Malimba can stand up in front of a stadium of 90,000 people singing and chanting and leading the people to all chant. You've got to watch it. It's demonic. 90,000 people jumping up and down, all dressed in red. Kill the boer, kill the farmer, kill the white man, kill, shoot to kill. Ba, 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 kill, kill the boer. And here they are chanting it. And if the ANC regarded Julius Malimba as a traitor and a defector and an enemy, they could have easily got him prosecuted or arrested for hate speech and gotten rid of their opposition easily. But they don't, which just goes to show the EFF is basically the vanguard of the revolution and they have plausible deniability. They can behave a lot worse than the government and the government can say, well, you know, that's not us. Um, they're a separate party and that suits their end. But this is what we are, are doing. So we have had now in this country over 4,000 farmers and their family members murdered in the last 28 years under the ANC. And during this whole time, political leaders, including um, government ministers and even presidents have been singing, kill the boer, kill the farmer, um, kill the white man, and uh, singing, whether it's in Kosa, uh, Dubula, Ibunu, um, or they are singing in, in English, it comes to the same thing, kill the boer, kill the farmer, Dubula, Ibunu is particularly kill the white man. Um, so is this not incitement to violence? Is this not incitement to genocide? And they're talking about we need to get rid of all whites. And I've, I've read of people overseas saying we need to replace the whites, and that's why it's important to have open borders and no borders and bring in people from third world countries whose governments are being destabilized and whose economies are being destabilized to have a massive tsunami of hundreds of millions of people from the third world move into Europe and America, traditionally white Christian countries, have them swamped, 
have their populations replaced. And I've heard a black racist say, a white woman can be of use because she can be made to produce a brown baby. But white men are good only for fertilizer. The only thing you can do is kill them and put them in the ground. And that's only good they are. And then you've got these people saying that uh, we've got to get to the point where there will not be any more white babies. And so sterilization, which, of course, the uh, LGBTQ transgenderism uh, is very effective, having little boys castrated, puberty blockers, having um, women having their breasts cut off, uh, having gentle mutilation and um, getting people effectively sterilized through this transgender movement is one way of ensuring there's not another generation. Abortion, of course, is extremely helpful to lowering the number of people in the population. But then immigration to swamp the people and then propaganda that you must um, you must have black uh, boyfriends or you're racist. And uh, you can virtue signal and show you're not racist by having a black boyfriend and things like that. And so you have Snow White and a gorilla and uh, all these kinds of... Uh, uh, social virtue signaling by the leftists where they fall over themselves to get their, their virtue signaling uh, status symbol of, you know, that they are not racist because, look, they've got uh, a person of the other race, what used to be called miscredination, which was always a crime in South Africa and many states in the United States of America was a crime. But now it's, it's so pushed to such an extent that even somebody like uh, Joe Biden has said, um, look how in, in, Adverts today, you will see that in most cases, it's mixed-race couples. In fact, Hollywood's pushing this as well. There's a huge amount of mixed-race couples and even gender swaps and race swaps for when they're doing things. Now you can even have um, Cleopatra being black and Snow White being black, for goodness sakes. I mean, where does the name Snow White come from? And uh, the whole idea of, of race, um, everything is acceptable except the whites. If you're too male, too pale, uh, you're definitely out. Now, for me just to speak a little bit about as a white South African who was brought up in Rhodesia, I was raised in Rhodesia and our race relations was excellent. And we were taught at school to be kind and polite uh, to black people and that we are responsible to care for uh, the black people in the country. And even as a young boy at school, we were being taught how to have good race relations and how to respect their culture and their ways of doing things and understand them where they're coming from and so on. And when they speak about white privilege, so my white privilege was I went to school where we were caned for anything we did wrong, uh, even sometimes caned for every spelling error and punctuation error. So we were caned at school and we were conscripted the army where we went to fight to protect black people who had been kidnapped by red terrorists and we risked our lives to protect black people from the landmines and terrorism of SWAPO and other terrorists who were um, threatening them. And here we were given pretty brutal training and rock PT and all the rest of it. And then, of course, people trying to kill you and vast amounts of flying metal coming at you. So that was my white privilege. And then when I went to college, I had a full-time job. I worked midnight shift, eight hours a night, six days a week at the fire brigade to put myself through Baptist Theological College because even in 1980s under apartheid, I was too male and too pale to get a scholarship. Blacks and coloreds at college got their education free and uh, whites like me, we had to work hard in order to fund it by working full time. And I was still running a mission and doing many, mission, many 
outreaches and services. So, for example, I'd have a college student would come to me while I was in college saying, I've got a, a sermon on Sunday, but I've got an assignment for Monday. Can you do my Sunday sermon? Well, always. I never turned down a Sunday sermon. I did over 98 sermons in a given year. And there's only 52 Sundays in a, uh, a year. So that means morning and evening, I was, I was busy almost every single Sunday throughout the year. With Now, I might have had three assignments on Monday, but I still took every Sunday sermon I could, and I still work at the fire brigade. So that's the way it worked at college, that uh, when they talk about the previously advantaged, the way they talk today, whites are the previously advantaged and blacks are the previously disadvantaged. Not true. Blacks have always been the previously advantaged. They always got free education, free medical, free college and all that sort of thing. And the whites had to pay for what they got. We got conscripted. They did not. So I'm not too sure about this white privilege business. Um, it would be nice to get some privilege, but the only privilege I got was getting caned at school, working full time to put myself through college and then uh, getting conscripted in the military where people want to kill me. And, uh, and that's quite a sound from the, the sergeant major who was threatening to rip off my arm and beat me to death with a sticky end if I didn't do what he wanted and so on. So this white privilege and previously advantaged and previously disadvantaged is a false narrative, I'm pretty sure. But it does get a bit much when you suddenly hear there's a bunch of people out there who want to say that you have no right to exist because you are white and you should not exist, and you should feel bad for, for existing. And then they want you to feel bad for being of British ancestry and being a Protestant because of slavery. But it was white Protestants who ended slavery, especially through William Wilberforce and David Livingston and other great heroes of the faith. And so why should the very people who ended the slave trade be the ones to be singled out for blame of it? There was far more slavery going on in the Muslim world, and still is to this day. I want to talk about the slavery going on today, which we did just a few programs ago, and uh, why do we ignore the much greater and worse slavery that's going on right at this moment and only talk about the slavery which ended 200 years ago. So there's a lot of manipulation, and I think the whole goal here is there's a hatred for God's people and there's a hatred for, the, um, for Jacob's sons, you know, Saxons, the Saxons, there's a hatred for uh, the uh, tribes of Israel and for those who are the British, uh, the people of the covenant in Britain, the land of the covenant and the uh, Germania, the, the people who are are the the true followers uh, of, of Israel. There's this hatred for uh, anyone who's got a Anglo-Saxon or Germanic, Scandinavian, Nordic background. And the evidence that... Um, our people could easily be the uh, tribes of Israel and be the true uh, children of God. Uh, it's very high, and many people don't want to look at it. But, for example, famous people like Queen Victoria believed it firmly. And there's a lot of evidence uh, of this. And interesting that there's people accusing us of being anti-Semitic, where uh, we may be uh, having a stronger case for being descendants of the children of Israel than many of the ones who today are more like Khazars and uh, Edomites, who are, are now uh, accusing us of, of being filthy goyim. And, uh, well, maybe the situation is quite different from what they say. But what cannot be justified is to stand up and say that you should be killing people of another race. It just doesn't make any sense. And only Christianity offers a rational basis for opposing real racism and pursuing justice. 
Equality before the law is a biblical principle. Numbers 15, 15. The community is to have the same rules for you and for the alien living amongst you. This is a lasting ordinance for all generations to come. You and alien shall be the same before the Lord. The same laws and regulations will apply both to you and to the alien living among you. Leviticus 19.15, do not perverse justice, do not show partiality to the poor, do not show favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. And we are told again and again uh, how God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself uh, through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against him. He has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. That's 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 to 19. The greatest command is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It is not loving a neighbor to be shouting and screaming to want to kill them indiscriminately, and no matter what the people have done, and men, women, children, really. But I saw that in Rwanda, and I documented it, the Rwandan Holocaust, after dehumanizing the Tutsi minority who are mostly Protestants, they were happy to kill the babies, the children, men, women, um, didn't matter. It was just a complete genocide because they dehumanized them, just as the Turks did with the Armenians and the Assyrian and Greek Christians uh, of uh, the Turkish Empire. They dehumanized them, then they justified murdering them. And right now, the most dehumanized, hated people in the world are the whites. White Christians are about the only people you can denigrate, you can belittle, you can insult, and you can threaten. You cannot say about any other race the kind of things that people are saying about um, whites. I mean, imagine if you said the kind of things uh, about whites that are um, uh, about blacks that are being said about whites. It's just absolutely unthinkable that, that you could say those sort of things. You'd be in deep trouble if you said the kind of things many of these people do. We've had elected officials in South Africa making statements on Twitter and on uh, Facebook that they would like to kill all whites. I'd like to take a bazooka and kill all whites. I look forward to the day when there's no whites left in the world. And uh, we must we must cleanse uh, the world of whites. And then we had a government official in South Africa saying, we must do to the whites what Hitler did to the Jews. And uh, obviously they've got their idea of, of what was done then. They say, this is what we need to do with the whites here in South Africa. And so interesting that uh, you can see such hatred. Now, the Bible um, does not speak of racism. The Bible does speak about one law for all, for the alien in your midst and the foreigner as well as for yourself. But the English Oxford Dictionary, interesting, you wouldn't, if you go back into old dictionaries or the Webster's Dictionary of 1828, there's no mention of racism, there's no mention of transgenderism or cisgender or any of these new things today. Uh, but a recent Oxford English Dictionary says racism is discrimination against or antagonism towards other races. Well, plainly, there's a lot of racism against whites. And yet, interestingly, we've got people in our country who say well, blacks cannot be racist, only whites can be racist. Well, that's an incredibly racist comment right there, isn't it? And uh, many vitriolically speak out against racism, but themselves are racist, displaying intense antagonism towards people of other races and advocating policies which discriminate on the base of race and even demonize people wanting them to be killed and destroyed. The Bible says if you hate your neighbor, uh, then uh, you are a murderer. To hate someone in your heart is like being a murderer. And that no one who has hatred in his heart who hates his neighbor uh, can have eternal life in him. So those people who are 
screaming racism. Isn't it interesting? The ones screaming racism the most are the worst racists of all. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And um, interestingly, that clip that you sent me arrived in my junk folder. Um, so they uh, okay. obviously targeted that other email address of yours. But I do have the YouTube here, so I'm going to click on it and see what happens, see if it is something that we can play. So I it's used just to Nine to five. Right, but it's what got made an me a millionaire. First, so I think it was working a few minutes every day. But we are. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, there's a bit of an advert first, but then it's got this demonic, and listeners can actually hear this demonic chant of 90,000 people kill the boy, kill the farmer, kill the white man, shoot to kill. It's absolutely staggering. To think in any civilized country you could have that behavior. It's so demonic. I mean, where has any such behavior been so tolerated publicly? And uh, Elon Musk has done us a good service by bringing this to world media attention. And uh, I think he's exposed the fact that the average person in government and the media around the world does not care. You can say anything against whites, they don't care. Let, let's play it then, because um, it's it yes. says anti-white racism, farmers being targeted in South Africa. It's from Sky News Australia, so I'll put the link in the post for the show. It's four minutes, so uh, here we go, folks. Australia, we have a long way to go before we reach the frightening depths of societal decline occurring in some other parts of the world, like South Africa, where political leaders chant about genocide, about killing white farmers in stadiums full of supporters. Shoot to kill Hamaza. Kill the poor, the farmer. Kill the poor, the farmer. Brr, pa, pa. That was the leader of the Economic Freedom Fighters Party, Julius Malema. And if you think he is even a little bit sorry about it, then think again. I will sing this song as and when I feel like. It's not my song, it's a struggle song. Now this chant of killing the Boers, killing the white farmers is being presented as just a civil rights anti-apartheid chant. As if that shocking history of farmers being targeted in brutal attacks where they are robbed, tortured and in some cases murdered, as if that's never happened. These attacks are real. And yet this murderous chant is not only tolerated but celebrated by some race-baiting miscreants. <laughs> in the space of a week in June this year, there were seven farm murders and these cases are horrific, including Pierre and Belinda de Kock, who were murdered on their farm in Picketburg in the Western Cape. Their bodies found with stab wounds to the neck. That was within days of one of the most sickening attacks uh, where Anik and Henny Klassen, both in their 70s, were tortured before being set on fire while still alive. Seven farm murders in the space of a week. These people are real, these farm attacks are real and have been happening for several years now, but South Africa's Equality Court ruled just last year that chants about killing farmers were not hate speech. And leader of the Economic Freedom Fighters Party, Julius Maliva, wants you to know things can get worse. Listen to this incredible interview where he says, we have not called for the killing of white people, at least for now, but he can't guarantee what will happen in the future. Let's get our land and let's work our land. 
I'm hated for that. What? What? Where? I mean, uh, uh, I, I don't. I, I. I. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I'm saying to you, we've not called for the killing of white people, at least for now. I can't That's, guarantee the future. Yeah, but I mean. You'd understand somebody watching that, especially as it gets shared on Twitter, they freak out. Ah, it sounds like a genocidal ah, call. Ah, cry babies. Cry babies. I'm not calling for the slaughter of white people, at least for now. The, I, I can't give a guarantee of the future, especially when things are going the way they are. Can't give a guarantee of the future. Genocidal. Cry babies. Cry babies. Oh, yes. If you don't like genocide, what's wrong with you? There you go. Nothing to worry about there. And since that clip of the stadium chant went viral, we've seen the usual suspects in the Western media defend the call to kill white farmers. Look at this disgraceful bit of work from the New York Times. Despite numerous farm murders in South Africa, the New York Times pretends kill the boar is just an anti-apartheid chant that is needlessly upsetting right-wing commentators. This would be the same New York Times that sees racism everywhere, including in the OK hand signal. Yeah, that's, that's racism. That's suddenly a hate crime. As is saying all lives matter or saying white lives matter, that's hate. But chanting about killing boas, killing the white farmers, shoot to kill, well, that's just harmless political chants. Don't go getting all hysterical about it. If you can't by now detect the very real, very dangerous anti-white racism, the dehumanisation and degradation of people based on nothing other than the colour of their skin, then you haven't been paying attention. OK, so there was the clip. Thank you very much for that, Peter. The video of that will be in the post for this show, so please uh, have a look at that and share that around. It's very important. The reason that I say that... I'm looking at the clip, and uh, as I scroll down, because we're recording this on Tuesday, August the 8th, um, and it says two days ago, so that means it went up on sa uh, Sunday, August the 6th. But I've been through my Daily Mail, top to bottom, on the Sunday, on the Monday, uh, and I'll be going through it today. And no reference to this has been made in the Daily Mail going top to bottom on the front page and not on the BBC front page either. So it just goes to show what this lady said at the end about how all the mainstream Western press, even the ones that claim to be on the right, like the Daily Mail, they won't touch this with a barge pole. So it's important for people in the independent media to circulate the plight that South Africans are going through right now. Peter, your comments, please. Yes, so during the war in Rhodesia when we were fighting for our lives against communist terrorism, the communist terrorists would herd Christians into a church and burn the church down on top of them while the World Council Church was giving uh, funds to those very terrorist groups, Zanu and Zapu, Mugabe's and Nkomo's terrorists. And the world media was not concerned when Rhodesian airliners were shot down and the uh, passengers were cooked and eaten by uh, the, um, the terrorists who were there. Uh, the world media was silenced. In fact, the Pope didn't say a word. The British Foreign Secretary didn't say a word. Uh, what, no word said by the Archbishop Canterbury. They did not care. As as the Dean of Salisbury Cathedral gave in his uh, sermon, uh, there's a deafening silence around the world when it comes to murdering of white people in Rhodesia, farmers, um, airline uh, passengers. Uh, these sort of things didn't seem to bother them. Now, in South Africa, we've had 28 years of tortures of farmers, Absolute tortures. Now, we had 70,000 
farmers in South Africa back in 1994 when Mandela took power. We had 70,000 farmers and they were feeding 100 million people in South Africa. That's quite an achievement. 100 million people being fed by 70,000 farmers. Well, today we have less than 25,000 white farmers left. And they are feeding 40 million people. Still an impressive achievement, but our population has doubled to now 60 million. So that means South Africa's had to start importing food. Uh, I mean, it just, people must ask the question, if you have no farmers, what's the result? Well, it's going to be no food. Right now you can see the new world order or the powers that should not be are waging a war against farmers, food, fuel, and freedom. And you can see it in Netherlands as well. Isn't it interesting how some of the most uh, productive farmers in the world, the Nederlanders, the Dutch, and the Afrikaans Boers, are being targeted most viciously. And uh, we've got this attempt to destroy our farms and destroy our farmers. At least the Netherlands only try and take away their farms, not trying to murder and torture their farmers. In South Africa, we've got both. They've got expropriation without compensation campaign, and they've got a campaign of terrorism you know, these farmers and their families, and I've stayed with the farmers, you must see as the sun starts to set, the people start to prepare for war. I mean, they literally, uh, the weapons are laid up, the ammunition is set out there, the, the mother, the children, they all have their duties and their positions they've got to be at if the farm comes under attack at night. And it's quite uh, scary. You start to realize, you know, these people are living under tremendous threat and the people have to be so careful and, you know, going and padlocking the gates and uh, uh, the dogs are being, some are, for outside patrol, some for inside. I was staying with a farmer in Zimbabwe, which had been Rhodesia, and they had been attacked one night by a group of 40 terrorists, including with mortars and so on. Now, they had a lot of dogs, maybe 12 dogs, and as the terrorists broke through the fence and came towards the farm, uh, the dogs uh, tore the throats out of several of the uh, assailants. Uh, most of the dogs got killed, uh, but... They'd saved the lives of the farmers by both warning and uh, thinning out the ranks of the terrorists. The farmer and his wife then managed to protect themselves and thin out the rest of the terrorists until the last survivors fled. But that's what can happen. And we've got farmers every day, they're facing these kinds of threats. I mean, just imagine you, as the sun sets, you start to think, tonight, my wife and children could be attacked. And you've got these farmers having to literally take all kinds of war precautions on a normal time uh, in a, what's meant to be a peaceful country, a country that's not at war, and uh, they're going to bed with uh, literally this extra security gates, burglar bars, and they've got firing positions, even have got, in some places, sandbags um, piled up under the window by the children's room, so if an RPG is fired at the children's room, uh, that it can be protected, that it'll protect the children's uh, cot from shrapnel because the sandbags piled up outside the uh, children's play cot. Um, you know, just imagine that you've got to live like that. And the people have all these different protections. You don't know if your dog's going to survive the night uh, and things like that. You don't know if you're going to survive the night. And I've stayed with these farmers. It's, it's quite um, uh, grueling. Uh, people could be encouraged to watch a film Farmland, uh, which is an expose by a Canadian journalist of the uh, attacks on farmers in South Africa, uh, it, it's pretty impressive uh, that um, some documents have made exposing what's being done to our farmers, but South African whites are uh, endangered species, um, sort of like the leopards, seriously endangered species. We've got to be seriously careful. And every single day, I pack on my pistol, I check I've got spare ammunition, I've got everything ready. At night, when I 
padlocked the gates and lock and bolt the doors. I've got to think in terms of, you know, we could be attacked overnight because I've got death threats and because of things that I write and so on and people who really don't like me. And so even myself in a suburb, in a city, I've got to think in terms of on a daily basis, live in condition orange or red because we could be targeted any moment. Most whites in South Africa, you know that you could be uh, torn from your car and torn to pieces in a very short time if you're not careful. There's these mobs of insane people. You just think you could have 90,000 people in a stadium chanting, kill the boer, kill the farmer, and they vote for this political party. You know, can you imagine living in a society where there's a bunch of people who hate you and want to kill you? So some time ago, my daughter was caught up in an incident up at University of Cape Town. Now, I never put any of my children through our universities. We had tertiary colleges and private colleges. I wouldn't uh, subject my children to our universities. But um, up at University of Cape Town, they have uh, beautiful halls. And so my daughter's part of a ballroom dancing society. And so she's doing ballroom dancing up at University of Cape Town next to Jamison Hall. And thugs burst into the hall wanting to rip down the oil paintings to destroy them. They make a bonfire of these irreplaceable works of art, um, oils and canvas. My daughter, being an artist, wouldn't let them do it. She physically stopped them, uh, protected the the uh, paintings and forced them out the door. You know, on one side, I was very proud of my daughter, but the other side, I was very concerned. She said, Dad, they looked like my hate. they hated me. And I said, Daniela, they do hate you. They looked like they want to kill me. I'm sure they wanted to kill you. And they said, they look demon-possessed. I'm sure they are demon-possessed. And, uh, you know, it's, it's it's very disconcerting when your own daughter risks her life going to a ballroom dancing event. But this is what we're living at here. And this has been encouraged by the British government. The British government betrayed us into the hands of Marxist mass-murdering thugs and revolutionaries who are proposing and propagating and singing all these uh, different incitements to genocide. And it's not like they haven't done this before. The British government betrayed Rhodesia, and now they're betraying South Africa. And uh, the American government has done a lot to aid people who want to kill all whites, and they don't seem to feel any sense of remorse and concern. But imagine if somebody was standing up in a stadium singing something about kill the Jews or the blacks or Asians or whatever. I mean, could you imagine what the response would be? Indeed. And that is why I've made the comment in the show post that uh, uh, the evidence that you've provided, Peter, that white people are the most persecuted people on the planet today. Um, yes. There's no racism, as they say. Um, racism, you can't be racist towards whites. I mean, it's, it's just astonishing how we've developed into what we have. Uh, before we go, can you please let the audience... Uh, know where they can find your work and how they can contact you. Certainly. So my personal email is peter, P-E-T-R, at frontline, F-R-O-N-T-L-I-N-E, dot R-G dot Z-A. Peter at frontline dot org dot Z-A. Mots on Facebook, social media, and our Frontline website's www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org. Those in North America, we've got a Frontline Mission N-A dot org, where, or in a short for North America, where they can order many of my books, like Slavery, Terrorism, Islam, and Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, are now available in North America as well, on the Frontline North America or Frontline Mission NA.org website. 
Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And uh, everybody listening, if you are able to support uh, Peter's wonderful missionary ministry, uh, he's given you some details there of the different websites they'll be linked to in the post for this show. Can you please repeat the North American website again, Peter? Yes, Frontline Mission NA, short for North America, FrontlineMissionNA.org. And uh, now it's based in Florida. We've got... uh, um, a large uh, supply of our books there to make it easier because the postal service from South Africa has collapsed and we need to have things. It's also a lot cheaper to have um, things shipped from within America than from South Africa. So uh, even people in Britain may find it easier to order books from our North American um, office. I will include the link to that website in the post for today's show and onwards with our shows because that's very important. Um, I don't take donations anymore, but if you do want to give, if you like the work that Peter does, the shows we put out for you, then please go over to these websites and support them, either purchase products or offer donations so that Peter can continue his work that benefits all races and is not uh, targeting against particular races like so much going on in the world today seems to be. So that being said, I want to thank Peter so much for joining us today on a program entitled The Real Story of Anti-White Racism and Calls for Genocide of All Whites. Peter and I will be back with you again next Friday. I will, of course, be back with you tomorrow. And until then, folks, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day and bye for now.